want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we're going to cover the first 11 verses. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're going to cover the first 11 verses this morning. We're going to be talking about uh, the wedding at Cana, or turning water into wine. And, you know, this morning when we, when we study this passage, there's something that, that I will get out of the way at first because I don't address it really any other way. Um, there have been people of, of different persuasions or ideas that, that have wanted to use this passage as uh, for uh, alcohol and people that have wanted to use it against alcohol. Well, two things. One, it does neither. Um, the second thing is you miss the whole point of the lesson that we are learning with this son if you make it about alcohol, because it's not about alcohol. Is, is, is there some alcohol in the wine that Jesus made? Absolutely, there is. Um, that, that they call it the good stuff, and if, if you know anybody that drinks, they don't call water the good stuff. And so Jesus definitely made uh, wine here. And so when you talk about that, you're missing the point if you make it about alcohol. If you, if you want to make that case, you've got to go to different verses. This verse is all about the goodness and the overabundance of God. And so when we read this passage, that's what it's going to be about. So we're going to be studying the first of Jesus' signs that, we, that he performed while he was on this earth as far as what John records. Um, we know that Jesus performed many, many, many miracles, uh, but John chose a very select number of signs to reveal the glory of God in the life of Jesus. Um, other other uh, Gospels will call them miracles or wonders or things like that. John uses the term signs, uh, and he uses that specifically because signs are for a purpose. Um, signs tell you something. Signs lead you down a path. Signs show you where to go. And that's exactly what John is doing with the miracles that he chooses to put before us with, with, in, in respect to Jesus' life. He even says you could, you could write forever on what Jesus did um, and, and, and not finish. But these are the ones that he chose. And, you know, most biblical scholars choose or call, say that John has seven signs. Some argue that he has an eighth, um, the, the eighth one being when he says, tear the temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. Um, but as far as miracles, the way that we would classify them, uh, John does record seven. Um, and obviously you would be aware of the sim symbolism of that number of perfection. But each sign teaches us a little bit different lesson about who Jesus is and, and the way that God was revealing himself through Jesus. Who is God? And, and, and how is that revealed to us in Jesus? And so that's what these signs are about. So while all the miracles, they're certainly historical events. In other words, all of these signs that John records, all the ones that we find in the rest of the Gospels, they are historical events. They did happen. Um, the main point for us is what the Lord is communicating through the event. If we were there at the wedding, maybe the wine would have been the big deal. But since we're not at the wedding, then what matters to us is what God is trying to tell us. What was he presenting at that point? So as we study the miracle at Cana, we will uh, see the goodness of Jesus as he points us to the cross. And so we're going to see that almost immediately, uh, and, and I'll point that out for you. The sermon in the sentence is this, Jesus is the abundance of the Father poured out for the salvation of man. And so that's really what we're trying to see when we look at this particular miracle. So let me read this for you. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Now, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now." This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so from the very beginning of this passage, John uses language that can be taken uh, more than one way. So we can definitely see what he's saying, historical facts and events that happen, the ways that these things happen. Um, but he states, for example, the wedding was on the third day, uh, which immediately makes us think about the resurrection of Jesus. He uses intentional language that points further than just this story. And so those are some of the things he says the third day. When we look at a wedding, now a wedding um, obviously is, is used as one of the major uh, events toward the end of, of, of time where we talk about the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so there's definitely um, overtures to that, that, that end of Jesus' ministry and, and the end of his life, um, even from the very beginning. Now, uh, when we think about um, who came to this wedding and how many people would have been there, you know, how big of the miracle it was and that kind of thing, um, it would have been a bigger feast. Um, just to kind of go through the history or the, the culture of marriage. So uh, to make a marriage, there were three basic things that had to occur. So the first thing was an arrangement between the parents of the couple. Now that could happen when, when they were children. Um, that, that could happen at, at, at pretty much any point. And when the, when the lady, when the young lady would come of age, she could decide whether she agreed with the match or not. So if when, when the two of them are three years old, they're both handsome looking children, but she gets up, you know, old, like 12 or 13 years old, and she sees that the boy doesn't look good anymore, well, she can break that arrangement or whatever. Anyway, so she can make that choice at that time, but once she agrees, then it's, then it's set. It, it, it is going to happen. And there comes a certain point when the time is right that they go through a betrothal process. Now, betrothal in, in, in Jewish culture was more than our engagement but it was less than our marriage. And so it was a time of, um, it was almost a, a test of faithfulness or a, or a test of loyalty. Um, and, and, and it was so serious that if a, if a woman, now not so much for the man, but if a woman was unfaithful during this time, she could be executed. It was, it was serious. And so when, uh, when they made it through that, and they, these could be up to a year, and yes, this was the, the stage of Mary and Joseph's marriage at, at the point that, that, that Mary found out she was you know, going to have Jesus. So after that, there would be a ceremony. There would be a, a, um, a, a, what we would call a wedding. They would have a ceremony. Now, the, the Jews did take this as a very sacred event. This was, this was all about agreeing with God and, and, and making it something that was, that was holy and incorruptible 
And then after that was a wedding feast. And as much as the, the ceremony was sacred, the feast was social. And so this feast is what we're actually talking about at this particular time. Now, the feast would last for about seven days. Um, not everybody came to all seven days, but invitations were given out pretty widely. And Jesus uses this um, cultural event in, in some of his other teachings at certain times where the Father sends out you know, invitations and, 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 and welcoming people to the feast. And he says, I'll send you again when, when everything is ready, when he sends and everything is ready then people don't come, and so he sends his servants out to, to, to get other people at that particular time. Well, a couple of things about that. One, um, to refuse one of these invitations or refuse to show up once you have been invited, that was considered a very grave insult. Um, but also, if, if you were a friend of the family or connected with the family and, and you expected to receive an invitation, but you didn't receive that invitation, then that was also a pretty grave insult. And so um, there, there was a saying in that time, if, if they won't have me for their wedding, they won't have me for their funeral either. Basically, th this cuts us off. Like, we, we're no longer friends. If you didn't invite me to this wedding feast, then I'm not coming to your funeral and nothing in between. That was the general idea of, of these things. So they were serious. Um, they, they, they were, but they were also social. And so, like I say, seven days of feasting, um, and, and there was a process that they went through for all of this, but for the most part, it was, it was, it was a time of celebration. It was a time of joy, uh, and it was very social. Now, Mary would have arrived before Jesus. That's the way that it, that it words it there, that, that the mother of Jesus was there, and then his, Jesus and his disciples were also invited. Uh, so Mary probably was still living in Nazareth and, and would have went to, to this wedding and even may have been there beforehand. Um, she didn't know when Jesus was coming back. Um, what we know just chronologically is that Jesus had went, he had been baptized by John, he had went out into the wilderness, been tempted for 40, or, or been, fasted for 40 days, been tempted, came back, began to gather disciples and came back down and was headed towards this wedding at this particular time. There is some question about where Cana is. Um, it, it's either about three and a half miles from Nazareth or eight miles from Nazareth. They, there's two villages that either one are identified. Both of them are easily one-day journeys. And so whichever it was, Jesus would have got to Nazareth and could have made it to Cana in, in a day. And so when it mentions the third day, you're probably looking at the third day from the last event um, in, in, um, in, in chapter 1, so that kind of helps you to understand how suddenly or, or how this would have happened. So Jesus apparently arrives during one of the days of the feasting, and it seems likely that it's the last day of the feasting. Um, maybe he was there for a couple of days, but either way, he's there at the end when they, when they run out of wine. So that kind of helps us with that. There's no mention of Joseph at this time, and, and there's no way to prove this in history, but tradition indicates that Joseph would have died when Jesus was roughly 16 years old. That's just kind of what has always been passed down as, as what's said, but there's no proof of that actually in history. Now, the disciples, outside of maybe Nathaniel, who was from Cana, the disciples probably weren't invited to this wedding, but when they showed up with Jesus, they, they would have been admitted uh, with him. They would have received basically invitations at the door or at the gate there to, let, to allow them in. Um, now, 
at this particular point, it, it is worth pointing out that John the Baptist, he was criticized because he didn't go to social gatherings. He held himself aloof, is what they would have said. So religious elites said that, that he was not part of society. And Jesus, because he did attend social gatherings, they criticized him and said that he was a, uh, a friend of sinners, of publicans, and, 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 and he, was, you know, he was a drunkard and a glutton and all those kinds of things. Well, neither one of these guys could please the religious elites. If, if you don't go, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck up. If you do go, you're a glutton. So there was no way really to, to make these folks happy. But Jesus went, and, and I saw this this week, which was really interesting to me. Instead of saying a friend of sinners, another way, a valid way to translate that in the original language is a sinner's friend. That actually changes things a little bit because instead of being a friend of sinners associating with sinners, he's a friend to the sinners. And is not Jesus a friend to us, even when we were sinners, reaching out and helping us and directing us a different path? And so if Jesus was at these social gatherings, but directing at a di toward a different path, that, that would have been a whole different look on how things are going at this particular point. So it's at this point that we're actually presented with a problem. We know Mary's there. By the way, John never says Mary's name. Uh, he mentions her as the mother of Jesus, but he never says her name. At this point, he's probably assuming that people know who she is um, because he did write much later, and maybe by this point she was looked at as a little bit of a, of a venerated person. We'll talk about what, where we should look at that in just a minute. Um, but he doesn't mention her name. He just says mother of Jesus. Well, she speaks out to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. Um, we find out that they have, they have ran out. And, and that would have been, you know, how much wine do you need for seven days? That, that, would, have been, that would have been kind of a, a, a big thing. If everybody showed up with six extra disciples, then surely you'd run out a little bit sooner. So either way it goes, whether it was because Jesus and his disciples came or just, they just ran out, that they were out. And, and this would have caused a, a pretty bad social embarrassment. Um, it, it, it is sufficient to say that if there's no wine, the party is over. And, and, and people are going away um, not happy, they're just going away. And, and so it would have kind of put a whole black mark on, on the whole thing, what's supposed to be a happy and joyous celebration. They could have had bad wine, that was actually the expectation at that point, but to have no wine, that would have been a pretty major problem. And so Mary, it seems that she wants to help this family avoid the embarrassment. And so instead of going to the steward and saying, hey, we got a problem, what can we come up with? Or going to the bridegroom and just bringing it out to him, like, hey, you're out of wine, I don't know what you want to do about that, she goes to Jesus. Maybe by this point she's used to looking to Jesus for certain help in certain situations, but she goes to Jesus because she knew his divine nature. Maybe she thought he was going to do something natural to help with the situation, or maybe she thought he was going to do something supernatural. But either way, she goes to Jesus for help. And we know that Mary knew who Jesus really was. Um, so she goes to Jesus, uh, bringing the problem to him, knowing that in some way or another he can help. Now, when Mary addresses his mother by the title woman, he means no disrespect. Now, kids, if you go to your southern mother and you say, hey, woman, What's this got to do with me? You know, we have dentists for a reason, and you may need to go visit one after that. However, at this particular time, that was not disrespectful. It was, it was a separation. That, that, that's, that's what it was. So it was in, in original like, like Greek literature and things like that, they referred to queens and high elevated women. They would refer to them as woman. In fact, 
And there's one writing in which Julius Caesar refers to Cleopatra as woman. And he doesn't mean it as disrespectful. It just means that he's separating himself from her because Julius Caesar separated himself from her at some point in his life. And so Jesus is not using a term of endearment, but he is using a term of respect. And so what Mary is going to learn through the course of Jesus' public ministry is that Jesus is no longer her son to command, but her savior to be believed. That, that's the difference. In other words, their relationship is switching from one of genetics to one of spirituality. So she is no longer the mother in charge of the son, but rather she is one of the followers. Jesus would later say, um, you know, who is my mother and who is my brother and who is my sister's, but the one that believes me and obeys my commandments. And so for Jesus, her whole status, like her whole place is going to be changing and he is helping, he's gently helping her in that transition. Um, the only other time that Jesus will even speaks to her in the Gospel of John, he calls her woman again, but that's when he's literally hanging on the cross, and he says, woman, behold your son. And certainly he means no disrespect there, but he is trying to help her see it's not just your son, it's your Savior. And he's trying to help her understand that. And, and that's the, the special nature, the way that God deals with, with us individually because of all the people that might struggle to understand, well, how am, I, how am I supposed to understand Jesus hanging on that cross? Don't you think his mother would have the most difficult time understanding that he did this willingly, that he did this for her, that, that this, was, this was part of God's plan? We don't want to see our children suffer. We don't want to see our children in pain. And of all the kinds of pain, this is tragic and horrible. And yet Jesus says, behold, like, look, see what's happening and understand why. And so he doesn't mean any disrespect, um, but he is gently indicating that the mother-son relationship has ended. Um, he's the Savior now. So he deals with this delicately, and I think that's really good. Um, but at this point, we also get another point of symbolism because he says his hour has not yet come. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's not time for him to start doing miracles we have no reason to believe that Jesus didn't do miracles beforehand. We, we don't know that he did. We don't know that he didn't. But what we do know is that Jesus, when he says, my hour has not yet come, he's not talking about miracles. He's not talking about whether he can fix this wine situation. He's talking about his glory being revealed to the world. So looking back at the cross, that is the ultimate revelation of God's glory to mankind. We look at it as an execution. We might look at it as, as any number of things, but that is the ultimate revelation of God's glory. If Jesus does this thing at this wedding, his glory may be revealed in a different way. So he says, my hour is not yet come. There's a later, his half-brothers try to make him go to Jerusalem sooner in John chapter 7, and he says, my hour is not yet come. Interestingly enough, because John's not interested in chronology, in, in that same chapter it says that Jesus heads to Jerusalem anyway. But it is his timing. And so that's the same thing that he's telling Mary. Is it's not his time yet. His hour is the cross. That's when he will be revealed. That's when his glory will be revealed. And so for him, that refers to the event of the crucifixion. So though Jesus was mindful of men's physical, social, and intellectual needs, they do not comprise the heart of his mission. So the fact that these people were about to face embarrassment, the fact that they, they were having a party and they, they ran out of the main thing that makes a party a party, he was not necessarily most concerned about that, but he was concerned about people. 
His ministry in these matters was but a contributing factor, enhancing to the grand portrait of God's redeeming love that we see at Calvary. So what Jesus does here helps to illustrate what he will do there. So that's how we have to understand this sign. Did, was it necessary for Jesus to turn water into wine in order for us to believe that he's God? No. There were other things that happened. He could have just waited to the end and raised Lazarus from the dead. That'd be pretty convincing. And then when he raises himself from the dead, we don't really need all the other things. However, he does this. And he does this to demonstrate the kind of Savior he is. He is not just a Savior at the end. He's a Savior all the way through. And he is not just a, a helper and a companion in the end. He is a helper and a companion all the way through. And so we see that. So, Jesus is certainly capable of meeting our daily needs, but his primary mission is to ensure that we believe in him so that we might have eternal life. And so this wasn't a salvation situation for most people. There's a small handful of people that it did become something like a salvation situation, but for most people, this was not that. And and that's Jesus' primary mission, and so that's where his focus is. So let's look at this miracle of the wine. Specifically, what is the miracle here? In some nonverbal way, um, Jesus indicates to Mary uh, that he will help with this immediate physical need, whether it's a nod or a look or a, oh well, you know, whatever it is. He says, yes, I will do this in in some nonverbal way, or at least John doesn't record the answer. She just turns to the servant, so she's not telling Jesus, okay, so what you need to do. She's not doing that, but what she does do is turn to the servants and say, whatever he says, just do it. Whatever whatever he tells you to do, just do it. She says it almost in a way to where she's maybe seen some of this before, and you you can try to put yourself in the place of the servants, it might be more enjoyable to put your place in, yourself in the place of the disciples who are just watching this thing happen and wondering, like, what's going on here? Okay, so the thing is, these, um, these stone, uh, stone jars. Well, first, when John actually goes to, gets to the business of telling a miracle, he tells it like very snappy. There, there's, there's no embellishment. Um, there's no exaggeration. It just is what it is. So let's talk about these stone jars. So for the ceremonial cleansing, so if you'll remember, there's a whole other situation where Jesus gets into where uh, Pharisees accuse his disciples of, of, of being unclean. It has to do with the washing of their hands. And there were always had to be water on hand for people to wash their hands. Now, we're not talking about Dawn dish soap or we're not talking about Dial. They, they would take water in their hand and they would do like this. Now, when I was little, my mom would tell me to go brush my teeth. And when I came back down the hall, she would say, did you use toothpaste? Like that was a possibility that I would brush my teeth without using toothpaste. And then I'd have to go back and use toothpaste that time. And, and then she would say, you know, you wash your hands. Yeah, did you use soap? And of course, then I'd have to go back and use soap. So we understand that, that, that you do need the soap to really wash your hands. But for them, it was a ceremonial thing. So, so they would take the water in their hands and they would do this number. And they would take the water in their hands and they would do this number. And they would wash their hands. They're no more clean. Their hands are just muddy instead of just dusty. They're no more clean than, than the disciples who didn't wash their hands in that scenario. But this was for a religious observance, and it was for every meal. It was something that they had to do. And so for this feast, for this, for this wedding, they had six 
six of those jars on hand to be sure they had plenty of water so that people could wash their hands the way that they need to. So these jars, so it's actually a Greek measurement is what the original language gives you. And, and so it's roughly something like 20 to 30, more like 20 to 25 gallons um, that each one of these stone jars would hold. Now the stone, the reason it was a stone jar is because it was thought that no impurities could come in through stone. And so that was what they had. And so presumably these jars might have had some water in them, but if it's day seven, maybe they're not full. So Jesus gives the order to fill the jars to the brim with water and then draw some out. So this would have been, we're out of wine, so let's go get some water. This would have started being scary for the servants. Now you do have to realize that, that in this day and age, the, the, the respect that, that we have for each other wasn't there between master-servant, that sort of thing. So they probably thought, well, we're fixing to get a whipping today for this. I mean, we're probably going to be at least berated, mistreated, whatever, for, for doing what we're doing here. So they go, they get water, they fill it up to the brim. So you're looking at anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of water that they've collected in these stone jars. And then the command is to, to draw some out and take it to the master of the ceremony. Now, the master of the ceremony was also another servant. He was the chief servant. He was the one, like a steward, involved with everything of the feast. So it was his role to make sure everything worked perfectly, so this is who you would bring it to. Um, and, and so presumably this was not like a public thing where everybody saw it, but this was more of a bring it to him. He tastes the wine and he has to call the bridegroom. He calls the bridegroom in and says, you know, ordinarily people wait till the very end. To, they give their best, the good stuff, and then at the very end they give the bad wine, but you have waited. Now there's some language about drinking freely here, um, and, and some people think that this means that the steward said, People wait till they're drunk, and then they give them the bad wine when they don't really care if it's good or bad wine. It's just more wine. Um, but in this particular case, the steward, regardless, the steward wasn't drinking. He was in charge of things. He was running this feast, so he wouldn't have been drunk to the point that he would not have known if this was good wine or bad wine. He would have been paying attention to the details, and he would have known, hey, this is actually very good wine. And so that's why he's complimenting the bridegroom, because he says, you've saved the best to last. That was not the practice in that day. Now, if you, if you think about save the best for last, that's kind of a, a motto that, that we do. Nowadays, we save the best for last. That's why dessert comes after lunch, right? Nobody eats dessert first, do they? I heard Baptists do, just in case the rapture happens. I, I don't know, but, but the idea is that we typically try to save the best for the last. But here is, here is this bridegroom, presumably, providing the best wine that he has at the end of the service. Now, Jesus never takes credit. Jesus does not let the, 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 the people at the wedding feast know that he did a miracle. Um, we don't even know if the bridegroom would have eventually found out, most likely, but it was a small group of people that knew what was going on here. Jesus' disciples, his mother, and these servants. And that one brave servant that probably scooped a scoop of water and probably looked like water when they were bringing it to the master, the, the, the master of the ceremony. The question is, when's the miracle happen? Probably sometime around the time he got the cup. Maybe right before he got the cup, right after he got the cup, sometime around the time he received the cup. He drank it, and it was wine. So it was water, then it was wine. And so when we look at this miracle, 
John doesn't even go into like specific details about who all knew or how amazing all that was. He just says these are the things that happened. And then he goes right into explaining um, why this miracle is recorded. So, when we look at this, Jesus did not come into the world to meet physical needs. But he is the fullness of God, so he can save us and satisfy us. Now, did Jesus really need to make 180 gallons of wine to, to make this last day work? No, but that's part of the miracle and that's part of the point. So what's the meaning of the sign? This was the first of the signs that John recorded and it was performed to manifest the glory of Jesus. So verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the disciples witnessed the sign and they believed what they had already been told. Namely, Jesus is the Messiah. So that's what they began to believe. They had been told by John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. They believed Jesus. Now, you know, there was the whole, I saw you sitting under a fig tree incident. But other than that, they had no real evidence until Jesus does this. And now, all of a sudden, they see he does something miraculous. They know, but nobody else does. So this was a, a point of belief. This was a point of, 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 of a saving belief, really, for the disciples at that point. As we look deeper, there are things that we notice about this sign, uh, or notice about the sign that tell us about the mission of Jesus. One, Jesus is concerned about our daily lives and can help even when it is not part of his specific mission. Either way, Jesus goes to the cross. If they have wine at this wedding or they don't have wine at this wedding. If he does what his mother asked him to do or if he doesn't. Either way, he goes to the cross. This, this is not mission specific, but it does show us that he has concern for our daily situations. Who made the mistake? Who made the mistake of not having enough wine? That wasn't Jesus' question. Why don't you go to the store and buy more wine? That was not Jesus' question. Jesus met the need. So when we look at our lives, we all get ourselves in situations from time to time and we look and we might could even point a finger and, and play the blame game. Maybe I made this wrong choice. Maybe you made this wrong choice. Maybe, maybe this was the problem. Maybe that was the problem. We don't need to do that. Once we realize we have a problem, whether it be a daily physical needs problem or a spiritual problem or whatever it is, let's go to Jesus like Mary did. Mary went to Jesus with this issue. It was not necessarily in his wheelhouse, but... He did it anyway. So, when we look at this, we definitely see that Jesus is concerned about our daily lives. The second thing, the laughable amount of wine that Jesus created speaks to the abundance of the grace of God which is poured out upon those who believe. Now, we've heard people say you can't outgive God. Well, even when we're not giving, because there really was nothing to give Jesus except maybe some water, He was still giving in abundance. It's safe to say, hopefully... If this was day seven, it's safe to say hopefully there were leftovers. We hope that they didn't go through 180 gallons of wine in one afternoon. But the idea is that Jesus gave abundantly more than what they needed. He showed his overflow. And, and so here's the thing. When we look at this, we're not really looking at the wine. We're looking at the abundance with which God answers prayers. And so that's what we have to think about is that when we pray and we ask God for something, don't be afraid to ask because He is going to bless. He is going to respond. He is going to pour out His grace. Jesus in the New Testament 
is the good one that replaces the old one of the Old Testament. So in Mark and some of the other Gospels, they mention Jesus as being the new wine. And Jesus talks about the new wine. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. And, and that has to do with the fact that you're not going to be able to fit Christianity into, in, in, into Judaism and try to make it grow from there. It's got to be a new thing entirely. Um, but here, Jesus is saying he is the good stuff. What they had was a, was a was an instructor, it was a mentor, it was an educator to get you to the point of Christianity. It was to get you to the point of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and salvation. And so now Jesus is the good stuff. So what the, what the Old Testament was telling us to look for or preparing us for, Jesus in the New Testament is that thing. And so that's what we see with this miracle is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that were made in the Old Testament. God is pleased to reveal His fullness in Jesus Christ so that when we believe in Him, not only are we saved, but we truly know the Lord. What can we learn about God from this? God is not lacking. God is not getting by. God is, is not... He's not limited. Okay, so, again, they could have made less wine. They could have made no wine. But God made wine in abundance. And why did He do that? Because God is abundance. God is fullness. And so our lives before Jesus, they are empty. They, they are without cause and without meaning. But when Jesus comes in, He fills us up and He fills us up with abundance. And so when we look at Jesus, we see this, this fullness, this goodness, this graciousness that is just poured out upon people. And we know that that is part of who God is. Because God was revealing himself through Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus, we can see that fullness, that abundance in God as well. And so what does God have for us? Abundance. He has goodness. He is gracious and he is waiting and willing to pour that out for us. And so when we look at Jesus on the cross, it wasn't just enough. It was all we would ever need. And that's what we need to remember about Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time to gather together. And I thank you for this great miracle that your son Jesus did on this earth. So many people misunderstand what he was doing, but he was showing us your fullness. He was showing us your goodness and the bounty that you pour out upon your people. Father, I pray that as we live our lives, that we would trust in you, not in the ways and the systems of this world, but you to meet our needs, both for our daily bread and for our eternal lives. You are all for us. And I pray that we live that way and that we believe that way. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.